Well, we have finished. Um, what did we finish? The book of Jeremiah. That's what we finished. And we're just getting into the book of Lamentations, which follows on. And it is the book of Lamentations was actually written by Jeremiah as well. And, um, and because we know just by its name, it's not a very happy-go-lucky book. And, um, but, but it is, and, and, and the, way, the way you know Jeremiah as the, as the book, what Jehuma Jeremiah was, and the weeping prophet, and we discussed an overview of the timeline as we did here, but there's many ways to study in that book. But the main thing is that Jeremiah had the unfortunate um, privilege to be a prophet of doom and gloom. And not that he was the only one, but he also was a different type of person than the other prophets. He had a more tender heart. He was just a different kind of person, so it really hurt him even more. Um, but we also wrapped up with something very interesting, which I just want to repeat here because it, it bears repeating because we just don't know, but it's an interesting thing that uh, Jeremiah may have been the one last one to see the Ark of the Covenant. And so we don't know. We talked about that. Um, and isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that he... His major, his major thrust was prophesying the fact that not only would Jerusalem be ransacked, but the temple, everything was going to be destroyed and the temple ransacked. The Book of Lamentations goes into that a little bit more. But the, 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 see, when you realize, and I know everybody here does, what the, the symbol of the temple is to a Jew, especially in the days when the temples were standing, either the first or the second temple. And, and the fact that they don't have a temple is bad enough, but when you, when, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So you can imagine Jeremiah's consternation when the temple is there and he knows. He knows that the whole nation is going to be taken captive. And God already said, don't even resist. And um, by the way, remember I mentioned also there's that song, um, By the Waters of Babylon. Remember they said that they, ha they, were, they were tasked to sing under their captivity. You know, Hitler did the same thing. Hitler, I just heard that last, just as coincidence, right after we had our Bible study here. I was listening to something, and it was talking about that. Amazing coincidence, right? And they, the, the, it wasn't Hitler himself, but some of these guards had tried to, to humiliate the Jews by making them sing some of their Jewish songs and, and, and things while they were being held captive in Germany and, and being brought to the slaughter. So it was the same kind of thing. So we're going to see a lot of similarities here, but let's begin now in, with the book of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah Lamentations. It was written by Jeremiah, of course, to mourn the destruction, which really, after all of the countdown I gave you in, in, the, um, when, in the Bible study we did in, in of Jeremiah, in 586 B.C., and then it took a while, because there were two sackings, it took a while until everything was sacked. Um, after delivering the most unwelcome message ever delivered to his people and being persecuted for it, especially when he said that God wanted Judah to just surrender and submit, like I just said, we, we know that, and not to fight, not to just, you know, and be taken away from the beloved city. Jeremiah writes in sorrow when all of this, um, when all of what does take place had taken place. I got a typo here, I got to fix here. And so, and when we look at the book of, Jer of, of Lamentations, and it's a very short book, it's only one, one chapter and five verses, um, but it, 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 it's so deep in emotion. It's almost like, to me, to me, it's almost like a, a really hard song, you know, that he wrote. And, and you're going to see, we're going to see what, what it works out to be. 
So where Jeremiah leaves off in the book of Jeremiah, he picks up in the book of Lamentations. Now it's all been said and done, and now he's really going to write down his mourning, his memoirs of mourning. I guess you could call it. That's what I look at it as. The book of Lamentations is composed of just the five chapters, and each chapter flows as almost a funeral dirge. So there's no happy relief in here. It's not like you have, you know, like a song, you know, you have your... Um, you build up and then you have your relief or, or like a psalm where there's, you know, you can see in some of the psalms there's some real hard, um, lethargic, not lethargic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Something like that. Heartfelt grief, right? And then there's this ramp up to joy, joy in the morning kind of thing, you know, that, that God is going to come, that there will be relief. God never loses his love for his people. You really don't find that in these five chapters here. It's really interesting. The title of the book in Hebrew is, I'm going to pronounce it in English here, it's called Echa. Echa. And this is the Hebrew, Echa. It's e, transliterated, it's E K A H. Echa. Well, it doesn't mean listen, but it. it in Hebrew, Echa. Well, no, but it's Echa. Now, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong, that's why oh, you're listening and I'm not. Yeah. That's how best I could transliterate it. But so lamentations is, is lament from the Greek, okay? Because in the Septuagint, it, would, it was in the, you know, the Latin and the Greek was lament. And so the book of lamentations naturally is the flow from that. But it doesn't really mean that in Hebrew. The name of the book in Hebrew, which is the original language, is how or alas or oh, okay? And it was interesting to find that out because that, that appears as the first word in the Hebrew text in verses one, in chapter one, verse one, chapter two, verse one, and chapter four, verse one, and we'll see that as we go in the English, it'll be oh, or like an excitement, like a, a, a horrible shock, a, a last, you know, a mourning kind of thing. But this word was commonly commonly used in that form in Israel in Israelite funeral dirges. That's what history says, anyway. So even the book itself, even the name of the book, is sort of like this uh, heartfelt angst <laughs> and. You translate that into something like to lament, you know, like a verb, to lament, that's the kind of thing. You, you all heard of Dr. J. Vernon McGee, remember yes. his Bible bus? He's been long dead now, but I was looking up some quotes about this from people I, I trust who, who have either made commentaries of the Bible uh, or, you know, had, I had learned from, and he's one of them I learned from, and I trust him. And here's his quote about the Bible, about that book. And Dr. J. Vernon McGee actually said, this book is filled with tears and sorrow. It is a, now listen to this, a, 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 a panea, or, or P-A-E-A-N, I don't know how you pronounce that, a pain of pain? <laughs> P, peon? I've never heard of that word before. It's you, a I, Greek. Okay. And it, does it mean like a composition of or a bucket of, something like that? It's a, a peon of pain. That's, how, that's what he said. Okay, story, a, a dirge or whatever. Okay, okay, good. So it is a paean of pain, a poem of pity, a proverb of pathos. It is a hymn of heartbreak, a psalm of sadness, and I, and I equated it to psalms before I even read that, um, a symphony of sorrow, and a story of sifting. He's pretty poetic, that guy. Wow. <laughs> Isn't he? Now he wrote that. That's right. I was going to get into that too. Yes, absolutely. Yep, yep. Sort of like Revelation is, but out of the you're right. Out of the twenty-two letters, the first five, we're going to get into that. Very good point. Lamentations is the wailing wall of the Bible. 
That's pretty good, huh? I mean, really, I could not have, I'm, I don't, master English pictor, pictor, uh, picturation, I can't even speak. I don't think in those kind of terms and put them on, in English, but when I saw that, I'm thinking, that's pretty cool. He's pretty, he's pretty artistic in his words, and Lamentations is the wailing wall of the Bible. Yes, no, please. Did you hear the five minutes of the speech? Did you hear what Netanyahu said about that himself? He's fired up. Yeah, can you believe it? But, I mean, I guess it should be said, can you believe it? I mean, what would you, would you, I would have been more shocked if they would have said different, right? But, but look how close we are, and they are pushing and pushing and pushing. Yeah, wow. The Book of Lamentations is acrostic, but it's poetic in its form. Each chapter of the book is comprised of a poem, making five poems in all, because there are five uh, chapters, uh, five verses, five chapters. I'm, I get those confused sometimes. I'm pretty confused. You ever notice that sometimes I'm just confused? It's been a bad, bad day today. I just got out of work a little while ago. The poems use the literary style of an acrostic, which you just said, where the poem is built around the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, right? Aleph through Tav. Um, beginning with Aleph and ending with Tav, Lamentations chapters 1 and 2 consist of 22 stanzas. 22 Hebrew letters, 22 stanzas. The first word of each beginning with the appropriate letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Isn't that interesting? Chapter 3 also has 22 stanzas, but each of the three lines of each stanza begins with the appropriate letter. Now, imagine the thought that was put into writing a book, and especially under the duress of that time when he wrote that I mean obviously this is spiritual this is something that God did right it's like when John was, was dictated the book of Revelation to him by Jesus right well we know that that's a, that is a unique book in all of the Bible for a number of reasons but most importantly it was dictated directly from Jesus it wasn't even inspired by the Holy Spirit to be written by the prophets the first thing but the second thing out of many is the fact that that too is acrostic in nature if you will where each, and we, when I did the study on the book of Revelation, I think you all were there, right, when I did Revelation, um, it, each, each chapter is, 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 is tied directly to the deeper meanings, or the meaning, not even deeper, it's the, deeper, the real meanings of each Hebrew letter, and I laid those out when I did that study. I'm not going to do that here, but I did that there, and it really worked out well. So you can see, this is yet another proof. It's like a Bible code that we know works, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, chapter 4 goes back to the pattern found in chapters 1 and 2 with the exception that it has two line stanzas rather than three. The fifth chapter has 22 stanzas, or lines in this case, and the lines do not begin with the successive letters of the alphabet. This book is only five chapters in length, but it is packed with emotion and grieving from a very tender heart. So we put all of that together. We can say there's a lot of thought and a lot of God-driven inspiration in the construct of this book. And that's why, again, and we know it here, it's so important to understand the Hebraicness of Scripture, of all Scripture. And, and, and that's why I, and I'm very far from, because I don't have the time most of my life, and I'm not a pastor, I never will be, I'm not called to be one where I, I, that's my job. But I've tried my best with the time I've had in all these years to really understand the Hebraic of the Hebrew mind of thought, the Hebrew thought. That's why I even was going to learn Hebrew. I have a book about it. I just never got the chance to really delve into it. But the more you understand the Hebrew mindset, like we, we also know about the, how the Hebrews lived. And so we can see some of those things like 
the courtship and marriage, and we see that so clearly in, in, in how the construct is used in, in Jesus and his relationship to his bride and how it all, and you have to know that Christians are paid to know this and yet so many don't care so many don't care so anyway I digress but that's that's a real especially here it just it shines right through the book actually maps if you will the warnings to Israel given in the book of Deuteronomy and I'm going to talk about that because I found that really interesting when I got a glimpse of that as I was studying because you remember what Deuteronomy was. It was basically the second set of law, the second law giving, basically. But it was really detailed. And, you know, in, in the physical way, you do this, you get that. You do this, you get this. You don't do this, you get that. I mean, that's what that book was about. And it maps. It's, it's really something. So I, I found some of that. And I'm gonna, we're going to go through that as well. But it maps into the warnings given to Israel um, as the cause and effect of obedience, the direct cause and effect of obedience versus disobedience. We saw a lot of that, too, when we studied the other books, especially in Isaiah. It says, you do this, I'll do that. You do this, I'll bless you. You do that, I'll curse you, and so forth and so on. So it's pretty black and white when you look at the legalistic, physical sense in which Israel lived with God versus the, the spiritual sense we live, although all those things apply to us as the church. But it's interesting. Um, in light of this, coupled with the poetic structure of this book, one could argue it is, and I put this as my words, I thought of this, it just came to my mind when I was looking at all of this, it is a book of poetic justice. <laughs> it came to my mind, like, yep, that's what this is. This is the definition of poetic justice. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to sample some of these things as we go on. Um, chapter 1 is a call to the reader as they start to read his scroll to consider the complete, complete, complete i mean this is the thing this is the complete this is not just you know a siege and they back off this is the complete and utter destruction ruin and then taking taking the people out right of jerusalem and as we review this book i would like us also to place this as what we have was flowing from the heart of the second weeping prophet which was the and again just like when, when we did the book of jeremiah i was really really looking at the parallels between jeremiah and jesus there's a lot of direct parallels between Jeremiah weeping over what's going to come to his people in that time and Jesus in the same situation who the prophet they still wanted to kill, who had the most tender heart, trying to tell them in no uncertain terms this is what's going to happen and they wanted to send him to death how many times and if it wasn't for, for, for the miracles that he could do, he would have been put to death when they would have thrown him off the mountain precipice. He would have been put to death before, way before, which is what Satan would have loved. But this is, there's so many parallels here. So Jesus Christ, as his first coming, mourned over what he also foretold was coming of, of severe judgment to his, who, to his people, his people, the Jews. So I'm going to read, if you want to turn there, just as a, as a, a, a backdrop here, to, to bring this more into our minds as we move into what Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was writing. Um, Luke 13, uh, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. They rejected Jesus' words too and wanted to kill him. And this is, this is the heart of Jesus toward his people just like the heart we're going to see of Jeremiah toward his people at that time and so Jesus says in Luke 13 34 and 35 oh Jerusalem Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones to this is I'm reading from the amplified version um, and stones to death those messengers who are sent to her by God how often I wanted to gather your children around me together around me just as a hen gathers her young under her wings, but you were not willing. What a heartbreaker. 
what a heartbreak. It's like those of us who have wayward children or, or wayward you know, relatives or, or, or whatever, you, you, you want so much for them to, to turn and repent, and they will not. And, and, and you, it breaks your heart because you know judgment's going to come, and they, and, 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 and they will not. Can you imagine the Jews who did believe and turned to Jesus and ran to him? How satisfying, how heart-satisfying that was to him. And, and again, think of it even for us as Gentiles. When we turn and repent, and, and we don't know all these warnings when we first come to Jesus, right? I mean, we usually don't know this stuff, Scripture. But the Jews did. And yet we can still come and repent of our lives when, when the Holy Spirit grabs us and we agree and we come to him. He wants to gather all of us as chickens, you know, chicks under, under its mother hen's wings. So in verse 35, he says here, but listen carefully, listen carefully. This is important. Your house is left desolate to you, abandoned by God and destitute of his protection. Sound familiar? Back in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. Sounds familiar to me. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed to be celebrated with prayer. Huh? That's right. Blessed to be celebrated with praise in the Amplified Version that amplifies the context is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He has to be Messiah and they have to recognize him as the one who came from God. Wow. I like that. She's, pr she's particularly acrostic. <laughs> so now with, with this backdrop set and our hearts really hopefully set to, to, to weep with Jeremiah and, and the duality of this, to weep with how Jesus wept over his people. But, and, and knowing, by the way, right, what happened, what was Jesus talking about in, in Matthew 24? When will these things be and the sign of your coming? And he's talked about, look at the marveling. of the, Remember, as they were walking by the temple, the setup for all of that, the same thing, the marvel, they pointed out, that's what started the whole thing. They pointed out the beauty of the temple. It was probably a, a sunny day toward a late afternoon. And the, the, the in, in, in Herod's temple, you know, it was beautified, right? So those, those gleaming white stones, they probably used lime or whatever to cover it, I don't know. This beautiful building and all the surrounding buildings on the Temple Mount. And it was wonderful after it was beautified. It was, the, it was a beautiful temple. It was more beautiful than, than Solomon's temple. Not more beautiful, but it was beautiful for that time. And, and, and Herod took Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple, and beautified. It wasn't as beautiful, but it was beautiful. And they're marveling at this thing. And Jesus then tells them, you see all of this? <laughs> Not one stone. Now, when you think about it, here's why I mentioned, again, the fact that the last one to see the Ark of the Covenant was probably Jeremiah, probably. But we know that it was never, it was never found again after that, right. right? And so it means that, and this is in particular, it means this. It's not only that the temple was sacked. It's not only that the temple was destroyed. That's bad enough, right? That's bad enough. But these people did something that even King David was not allowed to do. It's to go into that Holy of Holies, the holy place, and then into the Holy of Holies. And open that veil into the Holy of Holies as, as this disgusting, Baal-loving, pagan, disgusting Satan. I, you think of these people, these people in Nebuchadnezzar and all of them. And the Romans did it again, except there was no Ark of the Covenant. But they go in there into the Holy of Holies and ransack and defile it. By the way, you mentioned three and a half years into the tribulation. 
What is the abomination that causes desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which is going to happen again? Antiochus Epiphanes did it, right? When he, when he walked and he sacrificed that, that pig on the altar, and I'm sure he went into the Holy of Holies, right? But the same thing is going to happen where this guy is going to, going to take control of the temple and say he is basically the one who should be sitting over the Ark of the Covenant. You see how serious this is? I, I'm actually, when I, when I look at these things, and I'm pretty sure you do too, but when I really start to, start to still my heart and think about the gravity of the situation and when I'm doing these studies, especially here, and I stop and I say, how merciful and how long-suffering God is. Just imagine if these things, the way these demented, debauched people of Satan came into your home, took you out of your home forcibly at captive, and then took your precious things and ransacked them and burnt your home down. You, I mean, and, and possibly in front of your eyes. It, it's, it, how much patience would I have how, how much long suffering, and especially God could stop it or punish them at the spot, torture them right there, and he does not do it. How, how much when God looked down at the Tower of, of Babel, which we, we talk a lot about today because this is the reconvergence of the Tower of Babel, and he didn't destroy them because of his plan and because of his love, and he still gives those people who even do those things the ability to repent and turn and be saved. This is the God we serve. This is the God Israel needs to see. And this is what Jesus was saying. So now that we have hearts, hopefully, you know, what is that, meat tenderizer? Bang, bang, bang. Let's start reading the, the book in that mode. So I'm going to read chapter 1 and just start going through it. Um, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. I'm going to read, it's not very long, so I, and I really wanted to read the whole chapter because I want this to sink in and what this really is. So chapter, Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. How solitary, and this is from the Amplified Version. I like the Amplified Version because it amplifies it for me, but it, it, it helps me. How solitary and lonely sits the city, Jerusalem, that was once full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. The prince among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are constantly on her cheeks. Among all her lovers or political allies, she has no one to comfort her. By the way, isn't that what's happening right now? And look at the United States. As driven by Obama, and Hillary will put the seal on that, as a political ally or a lover, if you will, of Israel, there's no one to comfort her, no one to help her. She's going to be all alone yet again. Another parallel. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Obama, the United States, Bush, this two-state solution with the Palestinians, the Pope. They have become her enemies. Verse 3. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the pagan nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are grieved and suffering, and she suffers bitterly. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper for the Lord. Now, here's a, here's a key, one of the key things. And we're going to go see more about this in verse 2. For the Lord 
has caused her grief. You notice that there, it's, not, it's not the blame he's putting here. But since God has all control, and he has announced how much through this man who has to write this the years before, it was what, 20-something years he was, he was more, uh, going on them, you know, prophesying what was going to happen. And it was the, from the Lord's hand that his people are being twisted and torqued. Because of the multitude of her transgressions, her young children have gone into captivity before the enemy. All her beauty and majesty have departed from the daughter of Zion, which is Jerusalem. Her princes have become like deer. They have found no pasture. They have fled without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things that she had from the days of old. When her people fell into the land of adversity and no one helped her, the enemy saw her and they mocked her at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing and has been removed. All who honored her now despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns her face away. She's even embarrassed herself. Her ceremonial uncleanliness was on her skirts. She did not seriously consider her future. She didn't really believe that God would do something like this. Therefore, she has come down from the throne to slavery in an admonishing manner. She has no comforter. O Lord, cries Jerusalem, look at my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself in triumph. Sounds like many of the Psalms, doesn't it? The adversary has spread out his hand over all her precious and desirable things. For she has seen the Gentile nations enter her sanctuary. And this is what I was talking about. This is not, see, if you just read this, or if anybody just reads this, they can skim over this. No big deal. But when you think about the, the audacity, it's like taking a woman, a fine woman, a respectable woman, and in, in, a, in a crowd, ripping open her skirts and showing all of the detail that should be hidden. This is what this is talking about. And worse, it's God's place. It was where God dwelt. And even King David and the Jews could not go in there except for the political priests, and only the priests that were allowed to attend the Holy of Holies. Right? The ones whom you commanded that they should not enter into your congregations. Now, what he's saying here, not even in the outer courts, and I'm going to explain that, okay? So here's the, here's the, the wrap-up here, what I'm talking about. For she has seen the Gentile nations enter her sanctuary. We talked about the gravity of that situation, right? The temple inside. The ones whom you commanded that they should not enter into your congregation. Now, who are they? We know the Gentiles were always commanded not to enter, right? But let's, let's talk about what that is. But this, uh, because it says here in the Amplified Version, not even allowed to enter the outer courts, which was reserved for the Gentiles, Right? So who is this that this who is this that is not even going to be allowed that God didn't even want to allow to enter the outer courts? And again, this passage cannot be skimmed over lightly. It speaks volumes about the disgusting and filthy defilement that Judah brought straight to God's most precious and personal place in all the earth at that time, the Holy of Holies. We just talked about that. The disobedience opened up or exposed naked the temple and more precisely the Holy of Holies to the most vile and unclean and unholy and detestable people at that time. Let's understand what verse 10 speaks, and that's what, that's what I put in my notes here. The Ammonites and the Moabites were related to Israel because they were the descendants of Lot. Okay, this is the key. 
They were forbidden to even enter the congregation of the Lord, which is what we just read. They weren't allowed to enter the congregation area. Even to their 10th generation, that was the curse on them, just because they refused to assist the sons of Israel when they were escaping from Egypt. I'm going to read about that, but I want you to think about that. And they also did one thing that you will know for sure if you didn't remember this part. They're the ones who hired Balaam to curse Israel. Now think of this for a second. Their supposed offense, I mean the offense, but the supposed what would seem like a minor offense is they didn't proactively hurt Israel. They just didn't help her. Um, name a nation today that could do it, but now will not. This is serious business. So I'm going to read this in Deuteronomy verses 23, verse 23, 3 and 4. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. This is in Deuteronomy. So he's saying it verbatim right here. Even to their 10th generation, they shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever or, or ever. Verse 4 in Deuteronomy 23. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way, in your way while you were going. When you came forth out of Egypt and because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor of Pethor in Mesopotamia to curse you. It's plain. So you can see Jeremiah is referencing this. But even for people that were related to Israel, they were not even allowed to enter the outer court. And here we have Gentiles who the command is not even to enter anywhere near that, in, in these, these detestable Gentiles, to go in, in and ransack the sanctuary. This is how awful it is. The Israelites themselves, in that context, if you know how the, the temple was, was looked upon by these people, the Israelites themselves never even assembled any closer to the sanctuary of the temple than in the outer court. Let me just... Sorry, I've got to take a pause here for a second. So I don't want the... I have an automatic keystroker that keeps the screen from dimming so I can watch my timer. Sorry about that. But anyway. Um, so the Israelites themselves never even assembled any closer to the sanctuary, just the general population of the Israelites uh, of the temple than the, than the court outside the door. That was the inner court area. No Jew, and this is what I said because I wrote this in my notes because it impacted me. No Jew, not even King David was authorized to enter the sanctuary itself. Only certain of the priests of the Levitical priesthood, the tribe of Levi, to whom such service was as assigned. And you remember the, the temple liturgy where they, only the Levitical priesthood, that was their job to service the temple. And then the high priest was the only one allowed to go in there. And that was once a year. In Lamentations, verses 1 and 10, Jeremiah says the forbidden pagan nations have done what even King, this is basically saying here, what even King David, a man after God's own heart, was not allowed to do. And if you remember, King David was not even allowed to build the temple because he was a bloody man. So it was left to his son. This is how important this temple is, right? So even those who were God's favorite among his people could not do what God allowed these pagan, defiled people to do as punishment for the, for the severe sins of, of his people. The Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar had just, not, had just not refused to help the Jews or even simply hired another to just curse them, but proactively and with extreme malice destroyed their land and went all the way into the temple, straight through into the Holy of Holies, and took everything and laid it to waste. So they didn't even just stop and do what the, Mes the uh, Ammonites did or the Moabites did. They didn't just, you know, not help Israel. They were proactive. By the way, if you know this, and we, we reviewed this years ago now, during the temple sacking of A.D. 70 when Rome was, was uh, destroying the temple, 
there was an eagle that they had put. And that eagle is a sign of the Palestinians. If you remember, I said this, the Edomites, right? Because they were eagles, because they were in the clefts of the rock and in, in, in the, uh, oh boy, I'm having a brain spasm here. Petra, thank you. Bonf, thank you, yes. They were like eagles. They were considered eagles because they were living in, those, in, the, in the sides. They built those buildings and carved them into the sides of the, of the rock, right? And their, their interior was totally defensible because they only had that narrow passage in and out. So they were, they were equated to being eagles, and they took that as their sign. Okay? Now, you may say, well, the United States has an eagle as its sign. It's really more of a phoenix, and that's another story. But the point is, when Herod, who was an Edomite, by the way, descended from the Edom, Edomites, right, from, from Esau, which we're talking about here, and the Isra Israelis even today say that Edom, Rome, is Edom. The Vatican, also because of all of the mixing of Herod and the, and the Constantines and all those people into the royal family and the royal blood of today, which is the same thing. But my point was, God even says about the Edomites, they did the same thing, except they did it worse because they not only didn't help their brother. Remember along the way with Moses when, when he was leading them and they wouldn't help them to come through Jordan? But when the temple was being sacked in 70 AD, the Romans used the Edomites to help destroy their brothers, to destroy that temple. Nothing was changed. It just gets worse every iteration. But that's how you know the Bible is true. That's how we can see the lamentations. Because if you think this, of this from the Jewish perspective or the Israeli perspective, it really makes you, makes you mourn for what they do and what... It's the same thing over and over. And the Romans were the modern-day Babylonians who went in there and sacked the, went in there. And, and if there was a, if there was a, like we know the Arch of Titus, right? What does it show that they took? Even the menorah, they took everything. And if the Ark of the Covenant was there at the time, they would have taken that too. So it's the same thing over and over again. It's just, it's, it's worse. But they laid waste to everything. So this is, so the weeping prophet Jesus is to the Romans destroying everything in Sacred Temple as Jeremiah was to the Nebuchadnezzar and all that stuff. So, I wonder if Jesus would have written his own book of Lamentations if he had not, you know, been killed the way he should have been on the cross in AD 33. Because remember, the temple wasn't sacked until AD 70. I wonder if Jesus was still alive. Just think about this, right? We don't know. And I'm not saying he would have or should have or anything. I'm just saying, if you look at the parallels here and Jesus was alive to see that temple sacked in the way it was in AD 70, would he have been able or wanted to write the same kind of acrostic, deep, heartfelt lamentations that Jeremiah did? There's a lot of similarities here. A lot of similarities here. Let's go back to, to Lamentations, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. All her, by the way, you see how much we parsed just chapter, uh, verse 10 and thereabouts? That's how much, how rich this history is if you, if you apply it. And we know that. I'm just saying... It's amazing how there is so much packed into the words of the scriptures. Okay, anyway, uh, verse 11, chapter 1. All her people groan, seeking bread. They have exchanged their desirable and precious things for food to restore their lives. See, O Lord, and consider how despised and repulsive I have become. Not me personally, but well, maybe I have. Verse 12. It is nothing to you, all you is, is this nothing to you, all you who pass by? Think of what that means. There are, there are the, the people in the commerce going back and forth, and they're looking at Israel in her destruction, this poor woman, if you will, distraught, raped, thrown on the wayside, beaten, 
and sort of like this, the object of the Good Samaritan kind of thing. You people can walk by and not mourn and see, and, and at least you don't even show you're concerned. That's what he's saying here. This is about the morning. Like, how can you even look at this and not and, and say, is it nothing to you? Look and see if there's any pain like my pain, which is severely dealt out to me, which the Lord has inflicted on me. That's even worse. On the day of his fierce anger. And so shouldn't the Christian today know that? Doesn't, doesn't judgment begin at the house of God? Aren't we seeing what that means? So when God says to the Christian, no, you're saved only because it's a free gift, but you're, you're going to still be judged at the Bema seat. And people take that lightly. Well, I got myself some eternal life, but what about your rewards for eternity? I think it could be a very painful thing when we are told, shown, what we could have had, what we should have had, but will never have because of what we did and, or didn't do in this life here. That's how serious this is. Right. And trying to bring everything in. And, and you, know, you can be, you have new age things that come into the church, and people just, are, they seem to be fine with it. They're not, yeah. they're not grieved over those things, mixing in things that God says do with necromancy and right. talking to angels and all this, this stuff. And they're not, they're not so, what you say is not only absolutely true, but can you see any parallels here? Just think of the people in Jeremiah's day or Jesus' day doing the same things. The Pharisees helping these people do the same things. Today, the modern pastors who enable this stuff and who give these people who have the itching ears, who want to do this stuff, not realizing what God can and will do. You're right. So, see, what's so good about this, right, it's predictable. Because we know that I always study from the thrust, like you know my tagline, right? Getting to know God's heart, mind, his character, and his point of view. That's what I like to get out of Scripture, among, of course, the other things that we need to get out of Scripture. But we see that God does not change. So therefore, how he reacts and what he demands does not change for anybody. And, and to be careful because, you know, you start tempting the wrath of God. The more he waits, the more fire is going to come up until the fury comes up in his face. And then when he breaks forth in anger, you're done. You're done. They don't believe it. That's right. Perfect. Just like Job, right? With the storehouses of the snow and everything. Stored up, just like it says in Peter. This world right now is reserved for that storehouse of wrath. You're right. And so this is part of what we get when we as Christians study the stuff that Christians don't care about. It's wrong. But you're right. Good point. Verse 13. From on high he sent fire on my bones. And see, he's, dude, he's talking personally here. He's talking personally here. This is how bad he feels about this. And it prevailed over them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate and hopelessly miserable. Can you imagine Jesus also saying this on the cross? Or as he's being led to the cross? Same kind of personality, I think. I faint all day long. The yoke of my transgressions is bound. 
By his hand they are knit and woven together. They have come upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has put me into the hand of those against whom I cannot stand. The Lord has rejected all the strong men in my midst. He has proclaimed an established time against me to crush my young men. I guess you could also say he's speaking from the standpoint of, of Jerusalem. You know. The Lord has trampled down as in a winepress. And what do we hear about the wine? Who's going who's gonna to tread the winepress of God's wrath in another very popular book of the scripture? That's right, at the end time. The virgin daughter of Judah. Verse 16, I weep for these things. My eyes overflow with tears because a comforter, one who could restore my soul, is far away from me. My children are desolate and perishing, for the enemy has prevailed. And that's going to come again soon on Israel. We see it building up right now. Zion stretches her hands out, but there is no comforter for her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob, that his neighbors should be his enemies. Look at that cesspool that Israel's in the middle of, <laughs> right? Even before Israel came back into the land and she was dispersed among the nations, she was still surrounded by her enemies. They were always persecuting her. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing. Imagine that, an object of contempt among them. Now, verse 18, you, not, not, you see how we parsed verse 10 and we went through all of this lamentation? This is a good name for the book, right? Verse 18 is a signature verse in the thrust of this particular book. Listen to this. But here, it says here in verse 18, after now, we saw that he knows and he's mourning because God, it's worse, you know, it's bad enough when your enemy beats the tar out of you, but when someone who made you and formed you and took you as his own and loves you beats you like that, and it's not even so much correction. It is anger. And there is a difference. This is not just chastisement. This is anger. This is judgment. And there's a difference. We know that. So verse 18 says, The Lord is righteous and just, for I have rebelled against His commandment, His word. Hear now, all you people. So there's an admission here, right? Hear now, all you people, and look at my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I, Jerusalem, so this is the standpoint that we said we could consider this. I, you know, he's taking it personally. It's Jerusalem taking this personally. I, Jerusalem, called my lovers, my political allies, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they looked for food to restore their strength. See, O Lord, how distressed I am. My spirit is deeply disturbed. My heart is overturned within me and cannot rest. Sounds like David. <laughs> For I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword kills and bereaves. In the house, there is famine, disease, and death. People have heard that I groan, that I have no comforter in you, God. All my enemies have heard of my desperation. They are delighted, O Lord, that you have done it. What did Jesus say about people also in the modern time? That they will say that they do God's service when they kill you. And that's what's going to happen to us as Christians too. These people who are, remember I told you, and this is true, you see it now, there is no more middle ground. There is no more middle ground. There's going to be one side or the other, weed or tares. This is in this church, right? I mean, this church, this is what it is. So who, you know, faithful are the, of the, the wounds of a friend. But what does it also say about the way, where did you receive these wounds? 
right? From my own brothers, from my own friends. But I'm telling you, but that's basically what it says here, that they will be thinking that they're doing God's will when they throw us out, when they, when they persecute us for, for doing what they will not do. This is serious. They are delighted, O oh Lord, that you have done it. Oh, that you would bring the day of judgment which you have proclaimed so that they will become like me. That's retribution. That's saying, look, for what they're laughing at in my pain, oh, Lord, I wish you would do to them what you're doing to me because they actually deserve it. I mean, we deserve it too, but you see what I'm saying here. Verse 22, last verse. Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all of my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. I think what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up here, chapter 1, for tonight. And I want to do that comparison of Deuteronomy and Lamentations, now that we've gone through the chapter. You see the, you see the, the, the cadence of this, this chapter, and it's a heartbreaker. And I hope I set it up where you really feel it, because when I started looking at the history and what this was all about and everything, like I said, it, it broke my heart. And it's supposed to break our hearts. And, and no, God's the one who did it. But... Remember, all the years before that, Jeremiah kept warning and warning and God making him do not-so-nice things to have to show it to his people. I mean, the God, what was God supposed to do? What more could he do? He humiliated Jesus. If you think about it, this thought just came to my mind, right? Because before Jesus was put on the cross, which itself is humiliating because that was the Roman uh, solution to someone who's, who did the worst of crimes. Right? including insurrection and, and things like that. But he was beaten. He was spat upon. Right, He was maligned, mocked, punched in the face. A crown of thorns on his head making him bleed. And they say, yeah, here's the king. And they put a cloak on him and punched him and turned him around and said, hey, who punched you? Can you imagine someone doing that to God? Imagine Good point. Good point. I didn't even think of that part, but you're right. So the, the sheer humiliation. Yeah. So, but think of that, con what I'm trying to say, absolutely, but think of that, that Jeremiah was put into the same situation by God to be humiliated. And, and you know what's worse? What's worse? I, I don't want to say it's worse. What, what makes it more impacting, which is what God wants. You know, you could take a prophet like, let's say, Isaiah, which I think is antithetical as far as his stature, his demeanor, I mean, Isaiah was a prophet among kings, among prominence. He was well-spoken. He was probably well-self-controlled, was educated more probably than Jeremiah. I'm just thinking, you know, more erudite, let's put it that way. But Jesus wasn't like that. That's what was anti-intuitive um, anti about Jesus. It is said in, in, uh, in Isaiah that he was nothing that you would even think, that you would even call you know, exactly. desirable, which you would say, wait a minute, you, you know, you think someone's like, they wanted Solomon because they wanted a, a king, they wanted somebody who looks the part, and Jesus wasn't. Well, well, Jeremiah wasn't either. There's so many parallels here that I'm finding just that I never knew before because I'm studying this book. Anyway, let's, let's wrap up here. I'm going to give you about 12 minutes back. About, about, so. There's only a few of them. Okay. In Lamentations chapter 1, verse 3, it says, She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. Remember we talked about that? And in Deuteronomy 28.65, it says, Among these nations you shall find no rest. 
you know, this is the, if you do this, you get that. This is the same thing. The parallels are, are, are striking. In verse 1-5, part A of Lamentations, it says, Her adversaries have become the head. In Deuteronomy 28-44, it says, And he shall be the head, you shall be the tail. Verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, the third portion, I guess it's C here. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. Verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verse 32 in Deuteronomy, Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. See the straight talk warning, what happens when it actually is, is lamented about because it already happened. Years and many, many, many centuries later. Uh, Lamentations chapter 1, verse 6, part C, or sentence C, I guess. They have fled without strength before the pursuer. Deuteronomy 28, 25. You shall flee seven ways before them. <laughs> and the final one here. <clears throat> verse 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, C. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. Statement. Deuteronomy 28, 41. You shall have sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. So did God change? No. What he predicted in Deuteronomy and said, this is what I'm going to do. I will do it. He did it exactly the way he said he was going to do it. So God's not one to be toyed with. But we can revel in his love. And we can revel in the merciful God that we have. And just the fact that he gives us salvation shows his, not only his character, but that's just the beginning because he also imparts to us something that is, to me, I look at myself and everybody else I know. It's like, you not only saved me, which I'm not worth to be saved. You adopted me into your family, but you also put the mantle of righteousness that belongs to Christ, and you ascribe that to me? I, if I didn't know God and I didn't know who he was, I'd say, you're crazy. I not only can't, do not deserve righteousness, but I can't handle that. I am not worthy to be anything. I should be dead. Okay, save me. Great. Put me in your home. Make me a child. Take care of me. I'm appreciative because I should be dead. Ransom me out of prison, however you want to say it. But then you say, I am going to be a priest. I am going to be looked upon you as someone righteous. So I look at this, this, this polar opposites. We see what God can do in severity of judgment. And yet we see what he can do in the, the endless mercy and grace. That's the love. And yet everybody, most people, look at God's love well, I want it more towards the middle, but really more towards the right, you know. I want him to just make me feel good and provide for me. And he wants to love. And every time something good happens, he loves me. And if something bad happens, well, maybe, you know, he's, I don't know what to do. But no. <laughs> anyway, that is the point. <laughs> right, yeah. Judgment. You're There's right. no common sense in yeah. when you have a discussion with somebody about how do you feel about this? And they just... Right. But draw it back to the church. Look at these churches that Rachel was talking about. We talk about pretty often here. They have no common sense. And when, and when they are told what God requires of them, they say, no, that's not right. Or that's not the God I serve. 
You know, it's like God doesn't want that. He just wants me to do good stuff. And God loves us and he gives us clean windows and clean bathrooms because we're so holy because we do good things. It's, it's, it's insanity. It's insanity. But you're right. It's depravity. It's depravity. So anyway, but thanks for coming. <laughs> um, obviously, we're not going to meet next week. I'm going to be on vacation anyway. Um, we'll have a lot to talk about the week after that. <laughs>